I am a perpetual traveler through the Bible. Please join me for the next part of my journey through the scriptures. Stay as long as you like and let us together discover a bit more about the Bible. In the previous episodes of the Journey Through the Scriptures podcast, we learned all about the Apostle Peter's second letter. The title of that series of episodes was The Enemy Within. The theme of that letter focused on how to be faithful when facing falsehood and contains Peter's final words to the church. This letter was a warning against false teachers and an encouragement to believers to press on in faith and hope. Peter did not identify any specific false religion, cult or philosophy in his letters, but characterizes false teachers as those who teach destructive heresies. These teachers deny Christ and twist the scriptures. They bring true faith into disrepute and they mock the second coming of Christ. At that time, one of the most dangerous heresies affecting the church was Gnosticism. This heresy's central teaching was that spirit is entirely good and matter is entirely evil. It is this heresy that had infiltrated the early church and was the motivation for John writing his three short letters. The Apostle John is known to us because of his closeness to Jesus in the four Gospels. He is one of the inner circle of three, along with Peter and James, his brother. John is a familiar figure in most of the stories about Jesus and the disciples. We have a mental image in our minds of what John is like, but the image of John that most people have is probably not anything like he was. Many Christians think of the Apostle John as someone who was gentle and somewhat effeminate because of the way he has been depicted in many classical paintings, resting his head on Jesus' chest, looking up lovingly into his face. But that image of John is a far cry from what he was really like. In Mark 3 verses 17, Jesus calls twelve men to be his apostles. Among them were James and John, Zebedee's son, whom he named Beunarges, which means sons of thunder. This is the only place in scripture that mentions the nicknames of the sons of Zebedee as sons of thunder, and there is no explanation as to why Jesus gave them this name. However, Jesus always had a reason for everything he did so he must have had a good reason for dubbing James and John as sons of thunder. John 2 verses 24 to 25 tells us that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus knew the brother's nature when he first met them, and he chose sons of thunder as a fitting nickname. One vivid incident springs to mind. Luke 9 tells the story of Jesus and his disciples who were traveling through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, when they encountered opposition from the inhabitants of a Samaritan village, simply because Jesus' destination was Jerusalem, a legacy of the Jewish Samaritan prejudice. It was James and John who asked the Lord if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven to destroy the villagers. Of course, Jesus rebuked the brothers and they all went to another village. James and John's thunderous and angry response is one example when James and John lived up to their nickname. Peter and John are probably the most well-known of all the disciples, and the effect of Jesus on their lives is certainly important. Peter was an impulsive man with foot-and-mouth disease, always opening his mouth and putting his foot in it. 
Yet the Lord made him a steady, stable, dependable rock, as his name Peter, or Petros in Greek, implies. He became a rallying point from the Christians in the days of persecutions, which broke out in the first century. However, all of the change in Peter took place after the Lord's death and resurrection. It was not the personal presence of Jesus that changed these men. He changed them after he died and rose again, just as he can change us. In the same way, John was also dramatically changed by Jesus. Along with his brother James, the sons of thunder, he was a hot-headed young man and was probably a loudmouth. But after the death and resurrection of Jesus, John became the apostle of love. He was noted for his gentleness, his graciousness, and his goodness. In fact, in 1 John, the word love and its associated words occurs over 40 times. It is the same John, the apostle, who wrote these letters. These letters of John are probably the last of the New Testament to be written, and were probably written after the Gospel of John was completed. So these were perhaps the last words we have from the apostles, written between AD 85 and 95. They were written from the city of Ephesus, where John spent the latter days of his life. It was probably written to the Christians in Ephesus who were facing the threats and difficulties of living in a godless pagan world, a world given over to the worship of sex and to licentiousness, lovers of human wisdom, and glorifying man and his abilities. This is very similar to our modern Western world. First John was written to people in this kind of situation then, so therefore it has a lot to say to us today. John's letters describe the Christian life in clear contrasts. His assessment of the world is in sharp contrast to the modern fashion of relativism where nothing is true or false and everything is just an opinion. John and the rest of the Bible, by the way, is opposed to such a view. There are a number of contrasts in John's letter. Life and death, light and darkness, truth and lies, love and hate, righteousness and lawlessness, children of God and children of Satan, love of the Father and love of the world. Christ and Antichrist, and the biggest contrast of all, heaven and hell. There is no room for another way. You are either one or the other, and there are no other options. And just to remind you of what Jesus himself said about that in John 14 verses 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. First John deals with one thing, and that is authentic Christianity. Even at the close of the first century, the dullness and deadness that Christianity is plagued with today had begun to appear. The freshness, vitality and excitement of the Christian faith had begun to lose its glow and its glamour. John, therefore, with the rise of the deadly heresy of Gnosticism, is inspired by God to remind believers of the vital things, the things that make life real. He focuses on what shows in an authentic Christian. Real and authentic Christianity is always made up of the same three elements, truth, righteousness, and love. Therefore, these three signs in perfect balance are proof to anyone that he or she is a Christian, and such believers will fulfill the qualifications and manifest truth, righteousness, and love to the world. The first chapter of 1 John is the key to the way these three signs can be made manifest in a believer's life. There has to be a relationship. That relationship John calls fellowship with Christ. In other words, oneness with Him, an identification of our lives with Jesus Christ. 
If we do not have that relationship, we cannot produce truth, righteousness and love. It is impossible. The Bible is not the only source of advice on how to live a good life and to be a good person. The writings of Confucius, Buddha, Plato, Aristotle and Socrates and other great world leaders of moral and ethnic thought are filled with thoughts and advice as to what man should do. Today bookshelves are filled with self-help books on how to succeed in your life and how to reach your full potential. In other words, if all you need is good advice, you do not need the Bible. But one thing all these other philosophers and books do not give you is the how. In Christ you find the secret of how. It is by unity with Jesus, fellowship with the Him, with Christ dwelling in you and you dwelling in Him. This is what John is talking about in 1 John 1 verses 1 to 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. John says from the very beginning that he has a personal experience of Jesus. He says, I saw him, I felt him, I heard him, I touched him. He was a real person and in the fellowship of his life, I found it possible to begin to love, to walk in truth in obedient righteousness with God. This is the key to this letter. Have you noticed in 1 John 2 verses 12 to 14, he addresses his letter to three groups of people, little children, young men and fathers. These are not physical ages, but spiritual ages that are being addressed. The little children are the recent converts, who need to be given milk rather than meat to help them grow. The young men are those who have grown up and matured. John also writes to much older Christians whom he calls fathers. Here are people whose experience of God is very rich and deep. Many Bible scholars do not regard 1 John as actually a letter at all but a poetic sermon sent to the church. John is not really communicating new information. In fact, most of all the key ideas and words in 1 John come right out of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John. And so John's goal is to remind them and persuade these Christians to stay true to what they already say they believe. The poetic quality of John's sermon is quite different from that of Paul's letters. John doesn't develop his ideas in a linear or logical way, but uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. Rhetorical amplification is when writers repeat something they have just said, while adding more details and information to the original description. The purpose of amplification is to focus the reader's attention on an idea that they might otherwise miss. So John has just a few core ideas he wants to communicate about truth righteousness and love, and he circles around these ideas repeatedly throughout the letter, each time offering a different perspective or emphasis. You will notice that because of the rhetorical amplification, I will tend to quote verses from all over the letter, and will not work progressively through the letter chapter for chapter, verse for verse. I am doing the same as John did, working around the basic key thoughts. All through this letter, John emphasizes the fact that Jesus appeared in history, that is the first theme he talks about under the heading of truth in 1 John 1 verses 1 to 4. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, 
and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one, who is life itself, was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. The truth about Jesus is that He is God and man. He is both the eternal God, just as the entire Old Testament reveals the being and character of God. And He is man. Having come in the flesh, He lived amongst us, was a man, suffered as a man, died as a man. This is all so that we might share his life and his divine nature. Now this was opposed to the philosophy that was infiltrating the church in John's day. This was Gnosticism. The cults that are closest to Gnosticism today are Christian Science and the New Apostolic Reformation. Gnosticism taught that matter is evil and spirit is good. Therefore, the spirit of man was imprisoned in an evil body, and the purpose of this life was to teach us how to rise above the evil of our body and release the spirit from the evil material body and achieve nirvana or heaven. John tackles this heresy head-on, and in 1 John 1 verses 5 to 10, he exposes it. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. The truth about Jesus is that he came as God, became man, and anyone who does not say that about Jesus Christ is a liar. Further, the Gnostic heresy maintains that salvation is the escape from the evil body. This cannot be obtained by faith in Christ, but by special knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, so Gnosticism literally means having knowledge. John explains the weakness of this philosophy in 1 John 2 verses 3 to 6. We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should show their lives as Jesus did. These heretical teachers that John was dealing with were not out to destroy Christianity. They were out to make it more widely acceptable. They did this by leaving out and de-emphasizing some of the things that the New Testament apostles said about Jesus and emphasized others that aligned him with what they wanted to teach. They were essentially attempting to make Christianity intellectually respectable in a world saturated with Greek philosophy. This threat is still with us today. John warns us that if we give way to this, 
if we succumb to this kind of delusion, we will find out that we have been tricked and will end up discovering that we are not Christians at all. We will be following a lie and become a victim of a counterfeit religion and are deluded. Something that we all need to know is where heresy always originates from. John gives us the answer in 1 John 2 verses 18 to 19. Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us, otherwise they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. John is clearly stating that the beginning of heresy was always within the circle of Christian truth and doctrine. This is where heresies have their root. That is what the word Antichrist suggests. We often understand the term Antichrist to mean someone who is against Christ, or anti-Christ, like Marxists or atheists. But that is not the meaning here. The word really means instead of Christ, or in place of Christ. So it is someone who comes in the name of Christ, someone who declares that he is a Christian, and on the surface is declaring the truth of Christianity, yet as we look at his teaching it is contrary to what God in Christ has said. And this person is endeavouring to substitute Christ, or put something in Christ's place. In the second theme in the letter, the Apostle focuses on righteousness. Christianity is not just agreeing with a particular doctrine or truth. It is not just stating to the world that you are a Christian and assuming therefore that your actions and words must be true. Christianity is more than just truth. It is also righteousness. It means that our behavior changes. 1 John chapter 2 verses 29 to chapter 3 verses 3 says that if you know that he, Christ, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the key to a problem that every Christian faces at one time or another. The problem of recognizing other Christians. How do we know whether a man or woman is genuinely born again? How do we distinguish between the counterfeit and the true? Between the one who is genuinely born again and the religious activist? John says the key is, Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If we really have Jesus Christ living in us, we cannot continue to be the same person that we were. We cannot go on willingly living in sin, doing wrong things, lying and stealing, living in sexual immorality. We cannot do it. This is in contrast with what the Gnostic teachers were saying, that because spirit is good and matter is evil and our bodies are matter, then the only thing that counts is the spirit. They were teaching that what we do with our bodies does not make any difference and would not affect our spiritual standing with God. Jude 1 verses 4 says that these ungodly persons pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness 
and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Christians were being taught that they could practice all the immorality of their day and God would still treat them exactly the same. It would not change their relationship with Him at all. But John says in chapter 3 verses 9 that No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The two natures are incompatible. We cannot have the Holy Spirit living in us and live an unholy life. If we live the unholy life and profess to be a Christian, then we are liars, says John, and he is very blunt about it. Five times John uses the word liar in 1 John. And we can hear a bit of the old sons of thunder coming out here. John is that passionate and serious about dealing with this issue. The Greek word saiutes means liar or deceiver and is the same word that Jesus uses to describe Satan, the father of lies. When God justifies a man by faith, he proceeds to make that man righteous by the working of his Holy Spirit. He does not justify people by faith and leave them in an unrighteous condition. Everyone that is born of God does righteousness, loves righteousness, and seeks to walk in righteousness. So let us test ourselves by some of these things and see whether or not we are professing to be Christians when we have never known righteousness. How can we keep the old nature from producing sin? We do so by using the pruning shears of self-judgment. Whenever we find any tendency of rebellion against God, any tendency of self-will, any tendency to think of unclean or unholy things, we should get out the pruning shears and use it ruthlessly on ourselves. These tendencies are of the old nature, not of the new nature. They must not be allowed to grow and develop, or they will eventually destroy our fellowship with God. The new life in us is eternal life. It abides in us. We cannot continue in sin because we are born of God. That is what 1 John 3 verses 9 declares to be true. This is David Wiles, your fellow traveler in Christ, and this has been the Journey Through the Scriptures podcast, episode 12.